Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. So what's the solution? How do we fix it? How do we bring the country together? How do we calm things down? How do we make an America you want to live in? And the only answer, the only solution is honesty. Let's all stop lying. Lying about everything that matters, every day of our lives. That's what we're doing now. Have you noticed? What we're doing now clearly isn't working. Truth cannot be worse than what we're living through now. It is now over two weeks since the polls closed in the US election. Joe Biden is claiming victory, but Donald Trump has yet to concede, claiming a fraud has been committed. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. Numerous lawsuits made by the Trump administration across the various contested states have been dismissed. And only one of the 23 lawsuits filed has been successful, and this relates to an appeal requesting closer access for poll watchers in Pennsylvania. Trump has also made wider accusations about illegal election activity that has not been subject to court proceedings, but these have been widely debunked. Despite this, his claims have been echoed by members of the GOP, his lawyers, conservative media and his support base. As a direct result, trust in the election process is at an all-time low, with over 70% of Republican voters believing that the election wasn't free or fair. Trust in public institutions has been declining since the 1970s following the Watergate scandal, where five men were arrested following a botched break-in attempt at the DNC headquarters. This sparked a series of events which would bring down Nixon's presidency and change the course of US history. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. Nixon distanced himself from the burglary that his campaign had organized, including the payment of hundreds of thousands of dollars to the burglars to buy their silence, as well as ordering the FBI to end their investigation. But the plan to stop the FBI was captured on tape, and this became the smoking gun proving that Nixon was part of the cover-up. The scandal created a newfound respect for investigative journalism as the revelations were the result of the persistence and resolve of the Washington Post journalists Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Dirty tricks had been a common feature of politics, but this was the first major breakthrough that uncovered the extent to which politicians were willing to go to subvert democratic and legal processes. The impact of Watergate has been long-lasting. It rightly held those in power to account and established important legal and ethical thresholds that all politicians were expected to abide by. 
However, the scandal led to an increasing distrust of elected officials and the political process. And this distrust in government has continued until today, but has also spread to banking, the judiciary, science and academia. Even the media, the darlings of Watergate, are now treated with suspicion as a result of years of collective failures having been highlighted to the public. What has happened over the past 50 years to cause this loss in faith in institutions? My name is Peter McCormack, and this is In God We Trust, part three of Chaos, a podcast series for Defiance. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. On Tuesday night, I gave the order for British forces to take part in military action in Iraq. On March the 19th, 2003, despite international opposition, a coalition of forces headed by the US and the UK declared war on Iraq for a second time. Tonight, British servicemen and women are engaged from air, land and sea. Their mission? To remove Saddam Hussein from power and disarm Iraq of its weapons of mass destruction. More than 35 countries are giving crucial support, from the use of naval and air bases, to help with intelligence and logistics, to the deployment of combat units. Two years prior to the start of the Iraq war, all of the world's major powers unified behind the US after it sustained the most significant terrorist attack in history. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Of the second plane hitting the World Trade Center, that is spectacular pictures. I don't know if you, you could see the plane, and that too was a passenger plane. Oh my plane. goodness. We're looking at a uh, live picture from Washington, and there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. We don't know whether this is the result of a bomb, or whether it is yet another aircraft that has targeted a um, symbol of the United States power. And there, as you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. Good Lord. There are no words. Following the first plane hitting the World Trade Center, the subsequent attacks and the collapsing of the towers were watched live by a global audience. In its aftermath, many felt and shared the pain that the US was experiencing, and the UN unanimously adopted a resolution on September the 12th that reaffirmed the international community's effort to combat terrorism and recognise the right of individual and collective self-defence. Mr President, Excellencies, we meet, as you said, in exceptionally grave circumstances. Our host country and this host city have been subjected to a terrorist attack which horrifies us all. We must express our solidarity with the government and people in this hour of trial. Terrorism is an international scourge which the United Nations has many times condemned. 
A terrorist attack on one country is an attack on humanity as a whole. All nations of the world must work together to identify the perpetrators and bring them to justice. Then, less than a month after 9-11, the US invaded Afghanistan, believing the country was harboring Osama bin Laden, who had been blamed for the attacks. The Taliban, who controlled Afghanistan, refused to hand over bin Laden. As the country was considered to be a base for terrorists, the US began bombing the Taliban's military capability as well as Al-Qaeda training camps. While the Taliban was mostly defeated within two months, the US remained in the country helping to coordinate a transitional government and rebuilding plan. The following year, the US started making plans to attack Iraq, with Congress authorising Bush to launch an attack when required. Then Bush's administration proceeded to try and secure international and public support. The case for war was that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction, which posed a threat to the US and its allies. The US also made allegations that Iraq's leader, Saddam Hussein, had supported Al-Qaeda and was therefore part of America's war on terror. UK Prime Minister Tony Blair threw full support behind America, stating the desire was to remove Saddam Hussein's oppressive regime and bring democracy to Iraq. But there was widespread international opposition to the invasion. There were concerns regarding its legality and doubts regarding whether Iraq really had WMD. There were also concerns for mass civilian casualties and the risk of developing a broader regional conflict. This opposition was supported by the UN team tasked with monitoring Iraq for weapons of mass destruction. And there was also weak public support, and a global movement against the war was building against Bush and Blair's campaign. From the left, the right, from the radical to the uncommitted, they came. Whatever the figures, without doubt, one of the largest gatherings, let alone protest rallies, in English history. On February the 15th, 2003, millions of people around the world marched in protest against the imminent war in what was deemed to be the largest protest event in human history. As Matthew Taibbi said when writing for Rolling Stone, none were marching because they disbelieved the WMD claims, most marched because they saw the WMD issue as irrelevant at best, an insulting thin excuse for a wrong war that had some other, darker, still unreleased explanation. No support was provided by the UN or other leading world powers for the invasion. This led to a breakdown in international relations and significant tension between Western allies. Outside of the US and the UK, only Australia, Spain and Poland provided troop support for the coalition. So there you see it. Uh, you just saw it. You just heard it. Approximately five to eight minutes of an intense airstrike against targets in Baghdad. Uh, we have no idea the extent of the casualties, no idea the extent of the destruction. What we have seen on television, though, is indeed the first phase of A-Day, the uh, campaign called Shock and Awe. Nearly two decades later, coalition forces are still not left Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed and more have been injured or displaced. The conflict resulted in further destabilization of the Middle East and created a fertile ground for terrorist groups. 
the shambolic aftermath only confirmed the suspicions of those who were originally against the war. The lack of post-war planning, including the premature declaration of victory and the firing of members of the ruling Ba'ath Party, resulted in chaos. The very fabric of Iraqi society was removed overnight. This led to a prolonged and extremely violent civil war. And in a cruel twist of irony, whilst it was established that Iraq had not been harbouring terrorists before the war, the civil war led to the country becoming a hotbed of terrorist activity. Firstly, Al-Qaeda used the chaos within the country to build its presence and support, and this gave rise to ISIS, who had built their caliphate across the wider region. Discarding their previous title of ISIS for the simpler IS, Islamic State, they claim that the new state stretches from Aleppo to Diyala on the outskirts of Baghdad. Their footprint certainly stretches across the Syria-Iraq border, with Tikrit now a key battleground with the Iraqi army. As Pirate Briner reports, the other struggle is for hearts and minds. Despite the firm assertions of both Bush and Blair, no WMD stockpiles or evidence of a WMD program were ever found in Iraq. This wasn't the first time the US had entered into a long and costly war whilst misleading the public. The involvement of the US in Vietnam had begun in the 1950s and had also involved numerous public assurances of imminent victory. But the conflict became a prolonged and costly war that successive presidents had struggled to contain, let alone extract themselves from. It was not until the release of the Pentagon Papers in 1971, a top-secret investigation into American involvement in the Vietnam War, that important details of the conflict became public. Prior to this, the public and Congress had been kept in the dark about the fact that the scope of the war had significantly expanded into neighbouring countries. With the Iraq War, both the US and UK governments fed newspapers and TV broadcasters with information on WMD and human rights abuses. This helped build a narrative for the conflict, with the press largely failing to adequately question or validate facts prior to the invasion. Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News, was a strong advocate for the invasion. Their coverage was overwhelmingly pro-war, with live footage featuring an American flag and the headline, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Given Fox's ratings dominance, its coverage has been claimed to have influenced other networks in what was termed the Fox Effect. The most controversial example of a pro-war bias in the media was the coverage of Colin Powell's much-criticised address to the UN in 2003. Leaving Saddam Hussein in possession of weapons of mass destruction for a few more months or years is not an option. Not in a post-September 11th world. Powell provided intelligence that was stated to unequivocally prove Iraq's WMD programme. This was subsequently shown to be based on fabricated evidence that even Powell had private doubts about. However, investigations of the coverage identified actions by journalists, strengthened Powell's credibility, predisposed audiences to respond favourably to his discourse, and subtly altered his claims to make them seem more certain and warranted. Judith Miller of the New York Times faced the most scrutiny, accused of being spoon-fed lies regarding WND. The New York Times apologised for its coverage in 2004 and Miller was forced to resign in 2005. What is clear from this period is that while the news and media industry was rapidly evolving with the arrival of 24-hour news and the internet, the economics of the industry was changing and there was not enough support given to investigative journalists to pressure the government for real evidence. 
the lack of scepticism allowed for a wave of press to build support for the war. Whilst older generations had good reason to be cynical following Vietnam and Watergate, for many younger people this was their first exposure to how a government not held to account by the press will happily manipulate public opinion. We have concluded that the UK chose to join the invasion of Iraq before the peaceful options for disarmament had been exhausted. Military action at that time was not a last resort. I feel misled. I think that's the best word. Uh, we, we were not just misinformed, we were mis misled by the Pentagon. I want to tell you, they lied. Okay. They said there were weapons of mass destruction, there were none, and they knew there were none. The longer-term consequence is that there is a growing and powerful feeling of impotence on behalf of those who rallied against the war. Despite unprecedented grassroots opposition, no amount of objection could change the direction of a government so set on war. And more importantly, the war further eroded faith in the government, both in terms of trust and competency. Some of those who opposed the war have called Bush and Blair war criminals, given that it lacked justifiable authority and the carnage that followed. As a consequence, the public are now more open to believe governments are capable of all kinds of nefarious acts to enable hidden agendas. How many of these people who have lost faith in government and the media now find comfort in conspiracy theories? Shortly after the attacks on the Twin Towers, it was suggested that their collapse had the appearance of a controlled demolition. This conspiracy evolved into a whole industry of wild accusations predicated on government involvement in 9-11. However, it was in the aftermath of the Iraq War that conspiracies regarding 9-11 gained real traction. What were once hidden ideas in the extreme corners of the internet were now becoming part of mainstream conversation. Whilst there was growing distrust over the Iraq War, the Bush administration soon faced a domestic challenge which would further erode confidence in the government. Two years after the Iraq War started, a Category 5 hurricane struck New Orleans. Hurricane Katrina is churning in the Gulf of Mexico tonight, building up strength. Its size and 175 mile per hour winds are scary, making it one of the most powerful hurricanes ever in the Gulf. Katrina hit the southeastern coast of the United States in late August 2005. By the time it hit land, winds were in excess of 170 miles per hour. New Orleans was at a particular risk being below sea level, but was protected by a network of levees. Despite this, officials ordered a mandatory evacuation of the city in preparation for the storm, with some fearing the city would be flooded. Uh, I am this morning uh, declaring um, that we will be doing a mandatory evacuation. Despite tens of thousands leaving, many of the poorest and elderly remained as they did not have the money or access to transportation to leave the city. While some remained in their homes, others headed to the Superdome, the home of the New Orleans Saints American football team, to seek shelter. On the morning of August the 29th, it was reported that the levees on the 17th Street Canal, the city's largest drainage canal, had been breached. In more than 50 locations, storm surges had overtopped the levees and seawalls, sending huge volumes of flood water into the city. The flooding destroyed power lines and caused significant issues for emergency services trying to access affected areas, 
However, the situation was exacerbated by extremely poor organization on the ground, and the result was chaos. And with much of New Orleans now underwater, authorities are focused on search and rescue before it's too late. While people were clinging to their roofs, others were stuck in attics as water quickly engulfed their homes. The Superdome, which was holding an estimated 15 to 20,000 people, sank into anarchy. The hurricane had caused two holes to be ripped into the roof and floodwaters surrounded the building. There was also a dangerous lack of supplies, with plumbing and electricity within the building largely failing. Stories started to emerge of drug use, fights and rapes, however some of the more sensational stories were untrue, being the result of false claims that were recycled by government officials and the media. But people did die within or around the stadium and it took six days for everyone to be evacuated from the site, with the photographs and footage of the wrecked Superdome coming to represent the disaster. The failure of the levees was one of the worst engineering disasters in American history. The state and federal response were equally deemed to be one of the worst examples of disaster management in the Western world, and it is now used as a classic example of failure of government. There was clear panic and confusion on behalf of numerous officials on the ground as they struggled to contend with the overwhelming scale of the disaster. This is CNN's interview with the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Michael Brown. But how can it be that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of victims have not received any food and water more than a hundred hours after Katrina hit? Paula, I think it's so important for the American public to understand exactly how catastrophic this disaster is. I mean, we have a major American city, a major urban area that has been totally demolished. And what we're finding is, is that as we continue to do the evacuation and get people out, people who have completely lost everything, they have no place to go, they have nothing, that we're finding other people who are literally coming out of second stories of homes, they're suddenly appearing on bridges that are not underwater, that people who were unable or chose not to evacuate are suddenly appearing. And so this, this catastrophic disaster continues to grow. I will tell you this, though. Every person in that uh, convention center, we just learned about that today. And so I have directed that we have all available resources to get to that convention center to make certain that they have the food and water, the medical care that they need. Sir, you're not telling me. Those bodies that are there. Sir, you're not telling me you just learned that the folks at the convention center didn't have food and water until today, are you? You had no idea they were completely cut off? Paula? The federal government did not even know about the convention center people until today. To compound issues, messaging from Bush and other members of the administration were clearly ignorant of what was actually unfolding, and President Bush was widely criticised for congratulating Michael Brown for his efforts at a press conference. Again, I, I want to thank you all for, and Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The FEMA directors working 24 hours. The response to the storm damaged the government's reputation on multiple fronts. Despite Bush declaring the US could fend for itself, aid was sent from over 70 countries, including Cuba and Venezuela. This significantly undermined its international reputation. China openly condemned Bush's handling of the emergency, referring to the slow response as negligence of duty. But it was the public's loss in faith in their government that was the most damaging outcome of the disaster. Generally, 
it dispelled a widely held assumption that the US government, at all levels, could competently coordinate and manage a national emergency. This resulted in a huge loss of trust as people openly questioned if the government, at any level, was adequately prepared for potential future relief efforts. People were asking, how has this happened in America? Most importantly, the storm shone a light on America's long history of racial problems. Despite the progress made in civil rights for black communities following the lengthy protests in the 1950s and 60s, recent events have shown that there are still significant racial issues within America. The beating of Rodney King and subsequent exoneration of the police was perhaps the most egregious example that there was still a deep racial divide in America in the late 20th century. Katrina only added to this as the black community felt marginalised and disregarded during the crisis. In a Red Cross appeal, Kanye West went on to directly criticise George Bush's treatment of black people. I hate the way they portray us in the media. If you see a black family, it says they're looting. You see a white family, it says they're looking for food. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Similar to Iraq War and 9-11, the distrust of the government's response led to a rise in conspiracies regarding Katrina. Given that poor and black people were disproportionately affected by the storm and its aftermath, various theories started to develop regarding the state and federal response. In one example, the government was accused of blowing up the levees and sacrificing poor areas of the city to protect the more wealthier neighbourhoods from flooding. As with all conspiracy theories, it is twisted from a grain of truth. In 1927, during the Great Mississippi Flood, part of the levee system was blown up with dynamite to protect the city, but that in turn flooded other less populated areas. However, Alvin Poussant, a dean of Harvard Medical School known for his research on the effect of racism, has attributed the rise in such conspiracy theories to years of government neglect and discrimination against black people. Poussant has stated that people hold on to these theories as a coping mechanism for loss. Despite falling trust in government, institutions and the media, the American dream was very much still alive and faith in business and the economy remained. And despite the protracted war in Iraq, the stock market continued to make gains through the early to mid 2000s. But these gains and a booming house prices was hiding a new crisis which would further damage the reputation of government, whilst dragging the banks and Wall Street into the firing line. It was an historic day with Wall Street shaken to its very foundation today. And even the health of the most trusted firms are now being called into question. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. The closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange, the main index, down over 7%. Shock and panic evident on the faces of those on the trading floor. Despite the financial crisis coming toward the end of Bush's second term, its roots were firmly established during the Clinton presidency. While blame for the crisis was immediately laid at the feet of greedy bankers on Wall Street, the public were also generally shocked and angered at how successive governments had let this situation happen. Weakness in the face of strong lobbying by the financial sector and incentives to acquiesce to their demands, particularly in respect of future employment opportunities for government workers, resulted in lax regulations and poor oversight. 
Both Republicans and Democrats have blamed each other for the crisis, while others have blamed the Federal Reserve for creating a dangerously speculative economy. But it is impossible to blame a single party or institution. Instead, the crisis was created over decades via cheap credit, greed, and multiple administrations taking their eye off Wall Street. After the dot-com bubble burst, the Fed slashed interest rates, flooding the economy with cheap credit. Prior to this, the Clinton administration weakened the housing market by trying to make home loans more affordable. In rewriting the Community Investment Act, banks were incentivized into providing loans to credit-deprived areas. Banks relaxed their high standards for mortgage underwriting to provide loans which were at a higher risk of default in these communities, and by 2000, the lower bound for down payments was reduced to 0%. Clinton also signed the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, which exempted credit default swaps from regulation. Further, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac ushered in a new era of subprime mortgages by disregarding low credit scores, income and job history. To further expand home ownership, the Clinton administration offered 100% taxpayer guarantees against the repayment of these loans. The banks now had an incentive to loan as much as possible as they faced zero risk for defaults. Homeowners took advantage of the cheap credit to buy homes previously unaffordable, while others bought multiple homes which bid up the price. Mortgage brokers, wanting to maximise commissions, offered adjustable rate mortgages which further bid up the price of homes. These adjustable rates were set so that buyers could stretch themselves to homes which would normally be out of their reach. These adjustable rate mortgages allowed for an initial low rate which after, say two or three years, reset, often becoming much larger than the initial payments. Encouraged to use these adjustable rates by Alan Greenspan, the then head of the Federal Reserve, some buyers used these periods to buy and flip homes because house prices were in a boom. But it was Wall Street and their invention, the mortgage-backed security, which created a ticking time bomb for the entire financial system. These risky home loans were bundled up by financial firms alongside more reliable loans and issued as bonds using those securities as collateral. This was a highly profitable product when house prices were rising. But little regard was given to the quality of the loans, which led to the whole system collapsing. When the Fed raised interest rates, those with adjustable rate mortgages could not afford the higher payments. Demand fell and so did house prices. This in turn left many investors with properties they could no longer flip and homeowners started to default. By March of 2007, the value of subprime mortgages had reached $1.3 trillion and by July of the following year, 29% of adjustable rate mortgages were now delinquent. The housing market went into freefall, and the banks holding the mortgage-backed securities were in trouble. Struggling to sell these now worthless securities, their value plummeted, leading to a global financial crisis with the government bailing out a number of banks who were on the brink of collapse. A presidential address to the nation. Evening. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. I understand their worry and their frustration. We've seen triple-digit swings in the stock market. Major financial institutions have teetered on the edge of collapse, and some have failed. As uncertainty has grown, many banks have restricted lending. Credit markets have frozen, 
and families and businesses have found it harder to borrow money. We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis, and the federal government is responding with decisive action. As America moved into a recession, unemployment hit 10%, and many of those were innocent casualties of greed. $9.8 trillion in wealth was lost as the value of homes and retirement accounts plummeted. Unable to meet payments, millions of homes were foreclosed on in the subsequent years, while venture funds exploited the crisis, creating huge property portfolios. Using cheap credit from the banks, they would buy these homes below market value as the banks wanted to offload them, with their losses protected by the FDIC. Distrust in the system was palpable. The banks were bailed out while homeowners foreclosed on. Millions of people lost their jobs and nobody went to jail, apart from one former managing director of Credit Suisse Group who was sentenced to 30 months in prison in connection with a scheme to hide more than $100 million in losses. The DOJ never put resources into fully investigating what happened and who was to blame. Michael Winston, who co-founded Bank Whistleblowers United, said, We kept showing evidence, and this was not just civic fraud, but nobody wanted to hear it. Three years after the crisis began, the Occupy Wall Street movement launched. They campaigned against greed, corruption, and the undue amounts of influence Wall Street has over government. The group took over Zuccotti Park right in Manhattan's financial district. Calling themselves the 99%, they highlighted the massive wealth inequality between the richest 1% and the rest of society. But after two months of protests, Michael Bloomberg ordered police to clear the park and 240 protesters were arrested. Like the protests against the Iraq war, the movement was ineffective in driving change. Whilst it managed to raise awareness of specific issues, lacking a clear organisational structure and a vision for the future, the movement eventually lost momentum. But unlike the Iraq war, the public hadn't just lost trust in the government. This time, the whole system of banking, finance and justice too. Hard-working Americans were now the victims of Wall Street greed as well as an ineffective government. We can't afford four more years of that kind of politics. We can't chart a new course with the same philosophy and the same captain at the ship. We need real change. Obama's landslide victory in 2008 was triggered by the same popular distrust of traditional institutions that resulted in Trump's election in 2016. And it won't be easy. It won't be easy, the kind of change we're looking for never is. What we're up is some very powerful entrenched interests in Washington who will say anything and do anything and fight with everything they've got just to keep things the way they are. Obama appealed to those voters who had lost faith in the government's ability to deal with major issues. He campaigned on quickly ending the Iraq war and aiming to be the first African-American president his criticism to the response in Katrina resonated with black voters. Obama's radical messaging and the fact that he had only served for four years in the Senate meant he was widely perceived as an outsider from the same old Washington elite. He provided an inspirational vision 
when trust in politicians, elites and institutions was at an all-time low. But how did an Obama presidency, based on a message of unity and hope, turn into a Trump presidency that exploited division and fear? The economic impact of the global financial crisis highlighted existing issues that had been developing within the United States for generations. The country had been transitioning to a post-industrial society since the 1950s. Domestic service industries grew, while an increasing share of global demand for manufactured goods was provided by foreign competitors. Manufacturing jobs in the United States peaked in 1979 with 20 million people employed in the sector and remained relatively static until the year 2000. Then, through the combined impact of technological change, globalization and the recession, 5 million manufacturing jobs were lost between 2000 and 2014. The impact of these trends was particularly evident in the Rust Belt. In the 20th century, local economies in these states had specialized in large-scale manufacturing and the processing of raw materials required for heavy industry. However, since the early 1980s, the Rust Belt has experienced industrial decline. But it was the impact of the global financial crisis on employment and opportunities that meant a slow decline for local economies in the Rust Belt suddenly became an existential crisis, particularly for the auto industry. Michigan is regarded as the motor capital of the world. In 2009, General Motors and Chrysler both filed for bankruptcy. This led to 14 facilities between General Motors and Chrysler being closed, resulting in a combined loss of around 20,000 jobs. Obama was credited with helping the United States economy recover from the global recession, which led to unemployment falling from its high of 10% to 4.7% by the end of his second term. The impact of the Obama policies in the Rust Belt communities wasn't insubstantial. It staved off the wholesale loss of whole industries and the very real risk of a recession turning into a depression. However, the turnaround did not trickle down through all sectors of society, many of which were suffering from the devastated impact of systemic problems throughout Obama's tenure. What resulted was a hollowing out of the blue-collar communities as businesses closed and people started to leave. The opportunities for non-college educated people to aspire to a comfortable middle-class life were drastically curtailed. The impact on non-Hispanic whites was dramatic. The most sobering outcome was steep declines in life expectancy amongst this group, driven in part by an increase on what is termed as deaths of despair, those resulting from suicide or drugs and alcohol abuse. Obama's administration had provided an economic platform for the national recovery from the 2008 financial crisis. However, there had been a lack of any punishments for those who had evidently behaved in reckless or even criminal behavior. And whilst the top 10% of society were able to regain their wealth within a short time frame, most communities had not recovered by 2016. Businesses were closing and people were hurting and their pain was not being addressed. Elite America did not care because it mostly did not notice. The voters most adversely affected by the 2008 recession, particularly those in the Rust Belt, generally blamed the Obama administration for their job losses. There was widespread distrust of the traditional political class, the Washington elite. And after eight years in office, Obama was now considered part of the problem. 
At the same time, this angry sector of society, who felt disenfranchised, were finding solace in the increasingly partisan rhetoric of certain sections of news media. The most extreme example was the explosion of interest in far-right political groups. A George Washington University research paper identified a 600% growth between 2012 and 2016 in people following American white nationalist accounts on Twitter. But it wasn't this group alone that resulted in Trump's election. Trump addressed the thorny issues of stagnant wages that voters felt other politicians on both sides had previously avoided. Trump's message was honed in the later stages of his campaign by Steve Bannon, the executive chairman of the right-wing news website Breitbart. He was appointed to lead Trump's campaign after his approach by the Mercer family, who were the largest donors to the Republicans in the 2016 presidential race. Bannon saw Trump as a vehicle for a populist America First ideology, stopping illegal immigration, bringing jobs back from Mexico and China, and extracting the United States from foreign wars. Bannon was exceedingly critical of the Washington elite that he blamed for the crony capitalism that led to the global financial crisis. He saw the rise of anti-elitist populism as a natural reaction. Every financial crisis, I think, in at least modern history, is always followed by some sort of populist, right? Now, sometimes that devolves into fascism and other things, but every time there's a financial collapse of this, and remember, this is the biggest financial collapse in the country's history. This is bigger than- Bannon sharpened the nationalist America First messaging, and critically, he guided the campaign to target the forgotten working class voters of the Rust Belt and gave Trump a winning strategy. If I'm elected president, we are going to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. The election of Trump following Obama was not the result of some tectonic shift in voters' motivations. Whilst distrust in governmental, banking and media institutions was at an all-time high in 2016, this widespread distrust had been evident in 2008. This time, the anger was more palpable and voters were looking for the promise of change from someone who was less compromising. And Hillary Clinton was deemed to be part of the establishment which Trump was campaigning against. Still, Trump's victory in 2016 was largely a surprise. Hillary Clinton had neglected those states in the Rust Belt, believing this blue wall was impenetrable. But it wasn't, and Trump actively campaigned across the Rust Belt, and they voted for him, turning these states red and making him the 45th president of the United States. Since the turn of the century, there's been a rapid decline in trust in government institutions, and people have been increasingly looking for something different in their leaders. Where Obama tried to rebuild trust with a message of unity, Trump created division by exploiting people's anger in the establishment. And in 2020, trust would hit an all-time low. In the next episode of Chaos, we will look at Trump's four years as president and how division grew and how the final shreds of trust in government, media and the election process were destroyed along hyper-partisan lines. This show was written and narrated by myself, Peter McCormack, with additional production and sound design by Danny Knowles. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the safest and best place to buy and sell Bitcoin, 
available at kraken.com or you can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. I am Peter McCormack. Head over to defiance.news where you can download previous shows and watch our films. Also, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, please head over to our sister podcast, What Bitcoin Did.